Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs right before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backwards. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning. By day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rise himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. This is God's word. Well, morning, everyone. Uh, let me have my welcome. My name's Matt, if we've not met, and it'd be lovely to, uh, to say hi uh, afterwards. That's cheerful reading, isn't it? Or oh, a bit of New Year, a bit of New Year uh, of destruction against the land. Everyone likes it. Let me pray, and then we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 28 in a bit more detail. Our great God and Father, we thank you and praise you that while empires rise and fall and uh, countries ebb and flow, the truths about you are timeless. 
and the truths about human hearts are the same. So, Father, help us understand what was going on back then, how similar it is today, so that in simple terms, Lord, we would trust you. We do ask it for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, what we'll look at really over the next few weeks uh, in this chunk of the book of Isaiah is the fact that sometimes it's just really hard to trust God. Sometimes it's really hard to trust the Lord. And so we won't. <laughs> and we'll be tempted to uh, turn to other things. You know, when, whatever it may be in recent times, when COVID destroys your business, when your family is falling apart, when the culture around appears indifferent to Christianity or at points hostile to Jesus, sometimes you think, I need a bit more than an invisible God. I'm just finding it quite hard in the face of these situations to trust and finding it difficult. So what do you do when circumstances make it hard to trust the Lord? That's really the, the, the question over this chunk of the book of Isaiah 28 to 39 in, in the next couple of months. What do you do when it's hard to trust the Lord? Or who do you trust when it's hard? What voices will you listen to? And we'll come back a few times uh, to what well, not a bad summary verse in this section is chapter 30 and verse 15. This is what the Lord says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Oh, but you'd have none of it. We'll keep coming back to chapter 30 and verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Oh, but you'd have none of it. You trusted other things. But that's where you want to go. And so we start off today in chapter 28. When it's hard to trust the Lord, don't just retreat to booze and scoffing, all right? <laughs> it's very practical, this one. Don't live in denial. Don't bury your head under the duvet. When it's hard to trust the Lord, grow up and pray. Don't live in denial. Let's orientate ourselves a little bit because it's been a while. And um, if you've been here for a while at CCM, two years ago, we did chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah. Last year, this time, 13 to 27. So we're working through the different major chunks. And I've put them down on the bottom of the sheet. Just it may, or may help you remember it. But really, there's two halves of the book of Isaiah, 1 to 39, the book of warnings, often called. Uh, and then we skip a few years and we come to chapters 40 to 66, the book of comfort. But uh, we've looked at these different chunks. And really, chapters 28 to 39, the presenting issue in history for them is, who are you going to trust? Will it be Egypt or will it be the Lord? That's the choice. And that we'll see that just keeps coming over and over and over and over again. So to try and orientate ourselves, uh, let's have a little look at what was going on. We've got a map. Everyone loves a map. Here we go. There we go. Brilliant. So I don't know if you can see that. But here we are. The map goes from about 745 to 701 BC. So the global superpower is Assyria. They start off 745, that whatever color that is in the center, you'll know I'm colorblind. Should we call it pink? What are we calling it? Purple, lovely. We'll call it purple um, to you. 
pink to me. Um, the, the pink bit, no, the purple bit in the middle, they start off, and the empire grows. So it's, you know, it's just conquering territory. It's, you know, Nazi Germany in the late 30s. We'll have a bit of that. We'll take that. We'll take that. We'll take that. So the company goes, do you see down the, 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 the purple, in, I should have asked beforehand, should I, purple in green, are we calling it? And then, then Judah is what color at the bottom? Brown, brilliant. You see the brown bit at the bottom, <laughs> useless of colors. Um, that's Judah. So you can see that Judah feels a little bit small as Assyria is growing and growing and growing under these two great kings, um, particularly Phyllis III, and then Sennacherib. You don't need to know their names yet, but Sennacherib is the king by this stage. We're about 724-ish. Or if you get complicated, let me do it really simple with this picture. Got the next one? Okay. Assyria, terrifying. Terrifying. Judah, tiny. Okay. So what does Judah need? Judah thinks, we've got no chance against Assyria. Assyria is going to eat us up. Uh, We need an ally. Let's turn to Egypt. Egypt's quite strong. Look, Egypt's quite ferocious. Let's turn to Egypt. And... Why would you turn to Egypt? They're never good news. You, you know, the whole history of Israel is escape from Egypt. Um, but you know, Assyria is going to eat us up unless we get an ally. We need an ally. Isaiah says, trust the Lord. Everyone's saying, yeah, but he's invisible. So we need a physical ally. We need a big, strong ally like Egypt. Let's see, as this, the narrative goes on, Egypt offers their support, then reneges on all her promises. So Egypt becomes a bit like this a scaredy crock, and uh, runs away. And so all that's left by the time we get to chapter 36, we'll get there, Assyria and tiny Judah. And at that point, they got no choice. They trust the Lord. They should have done all along. But that's the backdrop. So if, um, maybe a fraction before 722, but if you're around about this period in history, 722 BC, and you're Judah. It's a little bit like, I guess, being in Ukraine at the moment. If you're on the border of Ukraine with Russia, and you're in a little village, and you can see the troops, you can see the, the Russian tanks, and you can see the forces, you just think, we're in trouble. They are going to invade at some point. Help. Where do we turn to for trust? Where do we turn to for help? That's tiny little Judah. The difference being, they're the Lord's people. They should turn to him. That's the context. Okay, let's get on with the text. What do you do when it's hard to trust? In chapter 28, you don't retreat to booze and scoffing. So we'll look at their drunken denial, we'll look at their scoffing arrogance, and then simplify the choice right down, okay? When it's hard to trust, don't turn to, first of all, drunken denial in verses 1 to 13. Yeah. If Ephraim just, you know, is, the, is the, the nation just north of Judah. And uh, what we get in the first few verses is Isaiah, the prophet, saying, look at them, they'll be destroyed before you. You should learn from them, Judah. Watch. Don't be like them. Okay. That's what's going on. So, woe. Verse, chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. To the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong like a hailstorm and a, a destructive 
wind, like a driving rain and flooding downpour, he throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. So the people in this country, Ephraim's the capital, are saying, oh, look, we've got a beautiful city. And it was a beautiful city at the top of a valley. You can Google uh, pictures of Ephraim, and it's beautiful still. A city, lovely valley. We've got a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah, but Assyria is coming like a storm, and you've got no chance against Assyria. And it seems that the people there were living in denial. They keep turning to drink. Chapter 28, verse 1, they're drunkards. Verse, end of verse 1, brought low by wine. And verse 3, they're drunkards. Some sort of refusal to accept reality. Oh, we've got a beautiful city. Yeah, but look, this vast empire that's eating everything in its path is about to come and invade. Yeah, we've got a really lovely city. It's a beautiful city, as. And pour the wine, will you? Let's, um, let's live in denial. Well, verse 4, even beautiful cities can be very fleeting. So this beautiful city, it's a flading flower, glorious beauty. It'll be like figs right before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In other words, it's going to go. It doesn't matter how beautiful your city is, how many years it stood. It can soon collapse. What you should be saying or observing, verses 5 and 6, in that day the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of the people. Now, beauty and victory come from the Lord, not a nice capital city. So that's Ephraim, just north of Judah. You look on them and learn, and indeed, in 722 BC, the Assyrian armies sweep in and completely destroy the, 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 the northern territories, Ephraim. But you can imagine the scenario, but, but we're, we've been here for years. We'll be all right, won't we? We'll be okay. Have another drink. But the main focus for Isaiah's ire, or the Lord's anger here, are clearly the religious leaders in Judah. That's really what dominates. It's that country of Judah, God's people that dominate the rest of the text. Verse 7, these also, I think is a reference to them. And these also stagger from wine and real from beer. They're the priests and the prophets. Now, just try and notice the language here. He's going to describe the religious leaders. But you see, the, 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 the language, he's almost poetically trying to describe the movement, so it seems to me, of, of, of a drunkard. So verse 7, these also stagger from wine and reel from beer, and they stagger from beer, and they're befuddled with wine, and they reel from beer, and they stagger when seeing visions, and they stumble when rendering decisions, and all the tables are covered in vomit, and there's not a spot covered with filth. Do you see the language is, is that of a drunkard just sort of stumbling around? He's saying that's the religious leaders in Judah. They're sort of tiptoeing around with a sort of... You know, they're just, they're drunk. They're no good at all. They're meant to be spiritual leaders, but they're acting like the staff of 10 Downing Street on Friday wine time, which we've been learning about the last week or so. And they complain about Isaiah. Verse 9, the religious leaders in Judah. Who's he trying to teach? To whom is he, Isaiah, explaining his message? Do children wean from their milk? 
to those just taken from the breast. For goodness sake, we're not babies, Isaiah. We got PhDs. Like we're the elite in society. Who are you trying to teach with your simplistic message? In repentance and trust is your strength. What does that even mean, Isaiah? In rest is your strength. What does that mean? Where is the Lord? We're fine. Don't give us that babyish sort of message, Isaiah. Verse 10, I think the footnote has it much better. Whatever, you can read the Hebrew if you can. You know, savlasav, savlasav, kavlasav, kavlakav. I don't think it's meant to be literally translated. They're saying, Isaiah, you're treating us like babies. You're saying to us, goo goo gaga, goo goo gaga, blah, 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 blah. That's all you give us, Isaiah, blah, 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 blah. Goo 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 gaga gaga. It's babyish nonsense, Isaiah, this trust in the Lord. How simplistic. Quietness and trust is your strength. Or we might say, the only hope you've got is trust in Jesus Christ. Don't trust in your own goodness. If you want to go to heaven, you just got to know and trust that he's done everything you need to get you there. Oh, what a simple message. What a babyish message. That's all you've got in the church? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's a great message. And the scoffers scoff. Right, says the Lord to the religious leaders. Verse 11, well, very well then. Well, I'll tell you what will happen. You're going to be invaded. And then you'll hear a lot of blah, blah, blah. You'll hear a lot of languages you don't understand. Verse 11, very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people to whom he said, this is the resting place. That's what's meant to be here. Let the weary rest. This is the place of repose. But they wouldn't listen. So the word of the Lord will become to them. Savla, sav, savla, sav, kavla, kav, kavla, kav, blah, 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 goo, goo, gaga. You're just, the, the patronizing way you speak of Isaiah, you'll just be hearing voices you really don't understand. Foreign tongues. And so what will happen? Verse 13, you'll fall. You'll be injured. You'll be snared. You'll be captured. We'll come back to the religious leaders. But I wonder what that might look like on a personal level today. Isaiah or the Lord would say to us, Look, when when adversity comes, when it's difficult to trust, don't just run into denial. Don't retreat into escapism of drink. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, I don't know. Well, let's just have a drink. Don't retreat into drink or trash TV or porn, or spend, spend, spend. Now, when life is tough, when it's difficult to trust, you need, to, you need maturity. Those are all very immature things to do. You need the maturity of repentance, a mature response like, we're going to pray. That's what you need. And we, we do know that. Uh, so imagine um, in a family... Uh, a, a younger child is, is anxious about an exam. 
you know, an eight-year-old's got a violin exam tomorrow, a 10-year-old's got a school exam tomorrow, and they come in and they say, oh, Daddy, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm really anxious. I'm finding it hard to trust the Lord about my exam tomorrow. Oh, well, son, let's open a bottle of gin and down it between the two of us. No one does that. I mean, no one does that. I mean, no one does that. Or, or, mummy, I'm really anxious about my music exam tomorrow. Well, let's just go and spend a fortune on Amazon. No one says that to their children. But we might do it ourselves. Oh, I'm, I'm anxious. I don't know what to do. This is a stressful scenario. Oh, let's just open a bottle. Let's just spend, spend, spend. Let's just throw myself into porn. Let's just live in denial. I'm going to crawl under the duvet because I can't deal with the reality. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> Isaiah is saying, you know, that to go and get drunk, that's more childish than a child. To live in denial, to refuse to engage with reality, that's, that's pathetic. No, we need mature responses. We need repentance. We need prayer. We need trust. We've got to grow up. Trust me. Turn back to verse 6, the source of strength. That's what the Lord longs to be to you. So look, don't, don't retreat. Oh, there's the first. Don't retreat into drunken denial. Uh, and then secondly, don't retreat into scoffing arrogance in uh, verses 14 to 22. Because alongside the drunken denial is clearly a scoffing attitude. You see at verse 14, therefore, Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. In the end of the section, verse 22, stop your mocking. And so God here addresses them with enormous, so it seems to me, a, a depth of sarcasm. I don't think that the leaders have retreated or, or, or have opted for full-blown occult behavior. I think there's sarcasm. Verse 15, you boast. We've entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. We've made a lie our refuge. We've made a falsehood our hiding place. We'll be fine. But the Lord says, you've made a pact with Egypt. You've made a pact with a lie. You think you'll be safe when Assyria comes. You will not. How stupid. I think at this point you have to say that there is, there's got to be some sort of application to religious leaders. And look, I don't want to be too broad brush, but I guess probably the most natural application or, or parallel would be to, to religious leaders in the UK. I mean, th there's, there's variety. But every single one of the mainstream denominations in the UK is collapsing. Every single one is collapsing numerically. Other, other churches are growing, but the mainstream denominations year on year are in absolute free fall. The Church of England, it's a mixed bag. There are some good and faithful bishops. Many are not. That's a shock. Many will scoff at the word of the Lord and verse 22 mock those who believe it. Only once did I go on a residential conference with uh, all the clergy of uh, the Diocese of London, which is probably one of the best in the country. And there's a variety, of course. 
But it was quite bewildering the number who got drunk and boasted about it. And, you know, you meet some people you've never met before. And, you know, oh, Christchurch Mayfair. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, that's right. Never, yeah. If you take the Bible literally, don't you? <laughs> how silly you are. How, how old are you? Yes. Well, when you're older, hopefully you'll grow up. Um, it said openly in a pretty condescending fashion. Yeah, well, your canvas, your canvas will broaden when you mature. That's the sort of language that gets used. And Isaiah would say, no. No, look, it, it, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Listen to the word of the Lord. Verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. Don't turn away from the word of the Lord. Don't make a lie your refuge. And verse 16, the Lord says, look, I've laid a stone and it'll test people. Some will be built on it and others will be broken by it. Verse 16, so see, this is what the, the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I'll make justice the measuring line, righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. With an overwhelming scourge, when it sweeps by, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it'll carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and night, it'll sweep through. Well, it's a bit bleak, isn't it? I think in this context, the cornerstone, which is the promises of God at this stage in Isaiah, all the promises that he's made, his faithfulness, his intention to deliver them. And he's saying, look, verse 18, if you trust anything else, well, you've trusted Egypt, but that'll be swept away. Egypt will do you no good. And verse 19, this flood, this Assyrian army will come again and again. Verse 20, hilarious picture. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. I guess we'd say, you can't hide under the duvet when the invasion comes. You can't just say, there's no problem here. You can't live in denial forever. Verse 21, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim and rouse himself in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, perform his task, his alien task. Well, it's all very you read about it, 2 Samuel 5, the, the Perizim was a, a great victory. Uh, David against the Philistines, the Lord wrote, here God is saying, it's all going to be different from your glorious past. I'm going to fight against you. Which God describes, intriguing language, his strange work, his alien task. And you have to factor that in. The Lord says, I will not allow people to scoff at my word and mock my people for believing it forever. Judgment will come, but that's not what's most natural. <laughs> I will judge the wicked, 
but it is a strange work to me, says the Lord, an, an alien task, I guess similar to what would be said elsewhere in, in the Scriptures. Ezekiel 18, I take no pleasure in anyone's death, says the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33. I don't want to be irreverent, but it's as if if, if, if the Lord took, as often we have to do, some psychometric testing, you start a new job, that sort of thing, I don't want to be irreverent here, but if the Lord took a psychometric test, the areas where he'd be off the scale pronounced would be mercy and compassion and faithfulness and kindness. They'd be off the scale. Now, he could do the other things. He can do wickedness. Excuse, excuse me, no. He can do judging the wicked. He can, do he can judge the wicked. He can punish the scoffer. Oh, they're well within his range. But they're not the most pronounced things. I don't want to be irreverent. But that's what he's saying, that the judgment, he'll do it. It's the right thing to do. But it's his strange work. It's his alien task. It gives him no pleasure. But he'll do it because it's right. So stop your mocking, he says, verse 22. So look, when it's hard to trust, when the Assyrian army is at the gates, don't just go for drunken denial, try and hide under the duvet with a bottle of gin. Don't go for scoffing, mocking arrogance. So silly. What have you Christians got? Trust in Jesus. How silly, how silly, silly, silly. Now, the choice is quite simple. You build on God's cornerstone or you face his strange work. That's the choice, ultimately. Ultimately, that is true. In eternity, it's true. It's the choice that faces us all, I guess, eventually. Either we'll have a life built upon God's cornerstone or we face his judgment. Now, of course, as the... Bible proceeds, the cornerstone, well, it's Jesus. It's evidently Jesus throughout the, the Gospels and into the epistles. Jesus himself says, yes, I'm the cornerstone, and the writers pick up on it. So, for example, one place in 1 Peter 2, Peter can say, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, if we've got it, it may not have appeared, but in Scripture it says, quoting Isaiah 28, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So there's an ultimate sense of this. Is, you either place your faith in the cornerstone, you say... I want to go to heaven and I don't trust my goodness, but I trust in Jesus's and that he'll take me there. Or you face God's strange work that he will reject scoffers. That's true ultimately. But then there's a second, I guess, lesser sense, which is true for most of us here who are Christians. We either actively build our life on Jesus, or we 
head for denial in chapter 28. We head for escapism. And I just want to be realistic and say, that's quite attractive sometimes, isn't it? It's quite attractive sometimes. Financially, how do I get the costs down in the family budget? Or how do I get the costs down in the company? Got to lose some people. It's been a real question for a number here, hasn't it? Over the last two years, I've got to get the costs down. Got to lose. Oh, oh I don't want to think about that. Actually, I, oh, open the bottle, will you? I can't deal with that right now. Let me just crawl under the duvet again. Let me just spend, spend, spend some money. I just, I'm going to go for denial because the reality is it's painful. Or in a personal sense, in the family, yeah, one family member, there is, mm, there's a problem, isn't there? There's, there's something wrong with, oh, yeah, we should probably, but I don't want there to be a problem. I don't want there to be a problem in our marriage. I don't want to name it, and then we've got to do something about it. I don't want there to be a problem with our child, because then if I've named it, we've got to do something about it. I'd rather live in denial. It's very attractive at times to do that. And Isaiah says to us, no, put your trust in the Lord. Do you see that it's a very lovely promise attached in verse 16? God says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. This is lovely. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And that is a promise the Lord makes to the Christian. Build your life upon Jesus, and the one who relies on him will never panic, never be stricken with panic. There's a whole range of caveats we could add to that. We all have our emotional range. Some of us bounce, you know, uh, very wide. You know, all of us have a range, don't we? You know, happy, happy, sad, happy, sad, panicked, content. You know, and for some of us, the range is quite, you know, and for some of us, the range is, you know, a bit like that. And, we, you know, there's variety. But there's a ballast. There's a stability when you trust in Christ that stops you falling over. There's a ballast to him. It keeps us upright. If we hear the word of the Lord and listen to Jesus, but just being realistic, there's no shortcut, is there? When it's hard to trust and we're freaking out a bit, there is no shortcut to hearing the Lord. And it's what we need. And going back to Jesus and saying, I trust you. I, I don't need to panic. We've got to think hard. We've got to face reality. We've got to put away the booze, come out from the duvet. We've got to do some practical planning. But we're going to trust you in it. Without being, wanting to be absurdly twee, I think God would say to me and to you, stability in adversity comes when you listen to me. You've got to proactively do it. <laughs> You've got to choose in adversity, choose when it's hard to trust, to build on Jesus. But stability in adversity comes when you listen to me, says Jesus. 
There's chapter 28. What do you do when it's hard to trust the Lord? You rely upon the cornerstone. That's it. Don't go for denial. Easy to do. Grow up. Pray. Repent. Trust in the cornerstone. Let's pray together. A great God and Father, thank you for the timeless realism of your word. That in the face of adversity, sometimes we, we don't own up to what's going on. We'd rather drink. We'd rather get drunk and not face reality. We'd scoff at the fact that what we need is to build our life upon Jesus. Occasionally we may think it's just not enough. Can't just pray to invisible God. It's babyish. Father, that is exactly what we need. Would you help us be those who can face up to reality because we know that Jesus Christ is a cornerstone that we can build our life upon. Trusting him means we will not be put to shame on the final day when we stand before you. We have the confidence of heaven. And building upon you now, practically daily, listening to your word, hearing your word, will mean that we're not stricken with panic. We can keep moving forward, even in the greatest of uncertainties and anxieties. Help us to trust and rely upon Jesus, we pray. Amen.